Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Dodger Stadium is sacred to many fans, especially as the team plays a wildcard game there tonight after 106 wins. But the stadium is also a source of deep pain for some Mexican-Americans. We'll look at a dark chapter of Los Angeles history known as the Battle of Chavez Ravine. Then we'll meet Ben Fong Torres, the Rolling Stone music editor portrayed in the film Almost Famous, who interviewed legendary musicians of the 60s and 70s and gave voice to a generation. A new documentary is bringing Fong Torres' story to light. Join us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. At a recent Dodgers game, three people sprinted across the field with banners that read Bishop, La Loma, and Palo Verde, former neighborhoods that were bulldozed on the land where Dodger Stadium now sits. The protest was an attempt to call attention to a piece of Los Angeles history known as Chavez Ravine. And joining me to tell us more about that history is Eric Avila, urban cultural historian and professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Professor Avila, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Great to be here. 
So tell us about this area known as Chavez Ravine. Who lived there and when? Uh, well, it was a neighborhood, well, it's actually three neighborhoods that uh, date back to the early 20th, late 19th centuries. Um, the three neighborhoods were known as Bishop, La Loma, and Palo Verde. And those three neighborhoods um, became known as, as the Chavez Ravine. Um, and they were working class neighborhoods. Um, they were settled by people who mostly uh, found work in downtown Los Angeles. Um, those three neighborhoods or the Chavez Ravine is located um, less than one mile from downtown Los Angeles. So it was a, an easy commute. Um, for the people who who lived and 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 worked in the vicinity of of downtown Los Angeles, it was a predominantly Mexican American community. Some of the families went back many generations, um, but there were also other racial and ethnic groups living in the neighborhood as well. Um, and it was a neighborhood that, as I said, was working class. Um, although it was a poor neighborhood, it was a tightly knit community of people who built community through a number of institutions like schools and churches and markets. Um, and in that sense, it was also a, a self-sustaining community of families that, that knew each other um, over generations. I've seen different estimates in terms of the number of families. Where do you put that at, Eric Avila? Um, there were several thousand people living in, in, in those neighborhoods. Um, I would guess somewhere between eight and 10,000 people um, up to the 1940s. So what happened in the early 1950s? So actually in the late 1940s, the city of Los Angeles received a, a grant of um, $110 million um, under a federal program um, designed to uh, promote and build public housing in cities throughout the nation. And with this $110 million, um, the mayor of Los Angeles, a guy by the name of Fletcher Bowron, um, he was a Republican mayor, but he was kind of a New Deal mayor. He was a, a, a three-term mayor um, who supported um, public housing and supported many New Deal programs. And so with that money from the federal government, he directed the city housing authority to uh, go around to different neighborhoods and identify potential sites for the construction of public housing. And one of the neighborhoods were, were the three neighborhoods of Bishop, La Loma, and, and Palo Verde um, that the city housing authority identified as um, ideal for, for public housing. It, it fit the housing authority's definition of slum housing. Um, those were the terms of, of the office of the housing authority. Um, and because the office considered those neighborhoods to be slums, um, they therefore proposed a, a, a public housing project um, replacing the existing housing um, uh, in, in the Chavez Ravine. And what did they promise the families? Well, they promised the families that um, if you vacate your property, if, if you abandon your homes, um, we will provide resources for you to temporarily relocate for one to two years while we build this new modern public housing project. And after its completion, um, you will be able to, to, to choose um, which units you would like to live in. It was 
on paper, at least in, in architectural sketches, it was, it was a very attractive uh, proposal designed by the renowned modernist architect, Richard Neutra, um, who envisioned a series of, of, of uh, low rise towers, like 13 story towers in a, in a verdant park-like setting. Um, there was a lot of concern initially among the residents of the neighborhoods. They had a lot of reason to um, be skeptical of the housing authority's promises. And after a number of meetings at, at City Hall where they voiced their concerns, where they reviewed proposals, um, a vast majority of, of the residents of those neighborhoods um, vacated their properties thinking that they were going to return to a, a modern um, public housing facility that would replace the existing housing in the neighborhoods. But what actually happened? That is not what happened, actually. So mm-hmm. the uh, residents, believing that, that, that they would come back to public housing, um, they, leaved their, they left their homes. And in the meantime, this is probably 1940, 1951-1952, the city begins to clear the land of its existing structures um, and, and to grade the land in preparation for, for the construction of public housing. However, a very powerful faction um, tied to downtown Los Angeles, which centered around the uh, editors and owners of the Los Angeles Times, the Chandler family, Um, began to organize the campaign against public housing, specifically in the Chavez Ravine. Now, there were other sites in the city um, where where a similar process was happening, sites that were identified as slums, where public housing was going to be built. Um, But the Los Angeles time and this downtown faction only expressed its opposition to a public housing project in the immediate vicinity of downtown Los Angeles. So it, it launched a, a public relations campaign against public housing in the Chavez Ravine. Um, and it did so by, by smearing public housing as a communist plot or as a socialist conspiracy. Um, remember, this was the Cold War um, in the early 1950s. Um, and so that kind of rhetoric had a, a powerful appeal um, among voters and among citizens. The other thing that, that the, Tom, the, the uh, Los Angeles Times did was that it, it sought a, a potential rival to Mayor Fletcher Bowen. And it, went, it approached a three-term congressman from Los Angeles, a guy by the name of Norris Polson, um, to run for mayor um, against Bowen. And Polson accepted the task and he, he organized a campaign to run for the mayor's office. And, and the centerpiece of his campaign um, was targeting the proposal for public housing um, in the neighborhoods of Bishop La Loma and, and Palo Verde. Mm. Um, and so he ran the smear campaign against public housing. And in fact, he won the mayor's office in 1953. Um, and with and his victory, it sounds like that public housing was not going to happen. I'm curious, Eric Avila, how did the Dodgers come into all of this? Well, the Dodgers came a little bit later. Um, so Norris Polson canceled the plans for public housing. And 
that left the uh, residents of the three neighborhoods um, uh, with nothing to come back to. Um, that the promise of public housing was canceled, that promise was broken. So here was this parcel of land less than one mile of downtown Los Angeles that was now owned by the city of Los Angeles, um, completely at the disposal of, of the city. And around 1953, 1954, um, the uh, city council and the mayor got word that Walter O'Malley the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, was not happy with his uh, baseball field in, in Brooklyn, New York, and was looking for a new home. So that prompted city officials in Los Angeles to begin to organize a, a campaign to rally um, O'Malley to move his team from New York to Los Angeles. And so when exactly did the team moved this land exchange hands and were all the residents who were in the Chavez Ravine area cleared when they started to, meaning they had left vacated or whatnot, when they had started to try to raise the land specifically for a stadium for O'Malley's team? So in the mid-1950s, the city officials in LA began to put together a, a package by which to entice O'Malley to bring his team to Los Angeles. And the centerpiece of that package um, was the land uh, that used to be the neighborhoods of Bishop, La Loma, and, and Palo Verde. Um, and that was very attractive to, to O'Malley. Um, it was essentially a gift of free land in the center of downtown Los Angeles, at the center of a, of a new freeway system. Um, in addition to many other goodies that the city of LA promised O'Malley, O'Malley agreed to bring his uh, team to LA. Um, and in the late 1950s, preparation began for the construction of a privately owned stadium um, that was essentially subsidized by the city of Los Angeles through this gift of, of free land. Now, at that time, most of the residents of the former neighborhoods had moved out, believing that they were going to come back to public housing. But since public housing was canceled, that wasn't going to happen. And now a privately owned baseball stadium was going to be built. But there were still a few people who remained in their homes who did not abide by the directives of the city housing authority. Um, and when it came time to evict those families, it happened on live television, uh, creating a national uproar about the treatment of, of Mexican-Americans um, by, by public officials. And we'll meet one of the descendants of those family members after the break. We're talking with Eric Avila, an urban cultural historian and professor at UCLA. We're talking about the history of Dodgers Stadium and Dodger Stadium. And I want to know what questions you have about the history that you are hearing from Avila today about Dodger Stadium. You can share it at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. Stay with us.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the history of Dodger Stadium with Eric Avila, urban cultural historian and professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. And on the line with us now is Melissa Arechiga, a board member for Buried Under the Blue, an organization that preserves the history of the former Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop communities in Los Angeles. Melissa Arechiga, welcome to Forum. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Glad to have you. You've said at least three generations of your family lived in the neighborhoods that were raised. How did you learn about this family history while you were at Berkeley? Well, first, before we go any further, um, when you first introduced this topic, you talked about the three indigenous uh, revolutionary warriors that took the field. However, you forgot to mention the 24-foot banner that was dropped in the back saying, not Chavez Ravine. So I think that that's very important that we include that. And I also want to give a thank you to the three warriors that put it on the line to bring awareness, accountability, and hopefully long-term reparations to the communities and all the people that lived there. So again, your question was? My question was how you learned about your family's history while you were at Berkeley? Oh, yes, in a class that was um, a requirement for the American Studies major. It was the history and the development of Los Angeles and San Francisco. And what did you learn? How did you connect the dots from the stories that your family had told you? When I seen the pictures of my mother and I recognized her and then the captions carried our name as well. And you have said that you would like to see recompense of some kind. Can you describe what you would like to see? Well, I think a public apology would be nice by the city of Los Angeles, the Dodgers Corporation, and as well the county of Los Angeles for the um, discrimination that they did in the illegal uh, land grab and the way that they violently took the land from um, not just my family, but from all the community members and the tricks and the lies and the hurt and the pain and the trauma that they inflicted on these three communities. So that would be a good place to start as a good open public acknowledgement for what they did. Uh, Next, it would be nice for them to give reparations to all the renters and the homeowners um, of the community. Um, It would also be nice if they were to give three community centers in the names of the three communities of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. Um, And many, many other things. We're still looking at many things that they need to do to make right so we can all start our healing journey. As uh, Eric Avila mentioned, there is documentation of this, and I'm very sorry for what happened to your family. What did it do in terms of their associations to the city and their view of the Dodgers? I'm sorry? 
What did the experience do with regard to how they started to view the city of Los Angeles and the team, the Dodgers? Well, that brings a lot of pain, right? I mean, you can see the pictures for yourself. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. A picture's worth a thousand words, right? You can look at the pictures and see what they did to the community, to and multiple. How... Sorry, go ahead. Multiple. Yeah, multiple families, because it wasn't just my family that resisted. It was a lot of families that resisted. Yeah, they believed saw... home ownership. Yeah, because again, who's going to want to live in an apartment when you're a homeowner? Who and... would want to change that? When you have home ownership, you own a home. It's never to go in reverse to an apartment. No, home ownership is the goal. Isn't that the American dream? Yes, and I saw that they were among a couple dozen families that had remained. As you're right, they were not the only family. Tell me, Melissa Arachiga, what kind of work is buried under the blue doing to preserve the history of these communities? Well, first, debunking the um, the white lie that's rooted in white supremacy of calling us Chavez Ravine because that has nothing to do with us. That's the city and the Dodgers uh, branding and marketing to change the narrative of our communities because that's part of colonization. That's what you do is you take and you rename so people can forget. It's called erasure. So one of the first things that's very important is that we not perpetuate the lie of Chavez Ravine because that has nothing to do with our communities. The members of the community called themselves Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. Right. When we take to the streets, when um, the police kill our community and our brown and black people, what do we say? Say their names. Because why? We want people to remember. Because when you no longer remember the names, then the erasure is complete. So one of the things is to make sure that we never forget. Melissa Arachiga, board member for Buried Under the Blue, an organization that preserves the history of the former Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop communities in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for talking with us. Joining me now is Eric Nussbaum, journalist and author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. Eric Nussbaum, I appreciate you being on with us. Thank you for having me. So we're hearing from Eric and Melissa about what happened. How do the Dodgers treat this history that's linked to the stadium and, by extension, the team? The easiest way to put it would be to say that they don't. It's it's completely unacknowledged officially by the Dodgers organization. What responsibility do you think they have in this, the Dodgers in particular? I think they have a responsibility to acknowledge the history of the land where their stadium sits and how that stadium got built. I think especially as the team openly markets and aggressively markets to Latino fans and holds, you know, lots of Mexican heritage nights and celebrates Fernando Valenzuela. I think it's, fair to say that they can also talk about the whole story and you know it's worth bearing or we're thinking about the fact that we're now like five ownership groups removed from the construction of the stadium we're decades removed at this point not talking about something that's publicly known just becomes it becomes like its own political statement you know not talking about it is is its own way of talking about it, I suppose. Hmm. You uh, you were a former editor of Vice. Your works appeared in Sports Illustrated, ESPN, the magazine, the best American sports writing. 
the Dodgers have cultivated a very strong fan base and a very strong fan base among Mexican-Americans. Can you talk about the relationship between Los Angeles's Mexican-American community and the team and just what role you think the story plays? Do you feel like it's something that, that fans embrace as sort of part of a complicated history, or do you think it's something that fans would like to know less about? I, I ask this I think... because uh, I read an L.A. Times column from Gustavo Arellano, who basically described that protest is not very welcome among the fans and the, that were in the stadium that night. Well, first of all, I'm not Mexican-American, so I don't know if it's my place to really speak to what Mexican-Americans feel about any one particular thing. Um, I will say that, you know, Dodger Stadium has a diverse fan base, um, that the Dodgers do not acknowledge this history at all, and that, in my experience as a sports writer, as a journalist, as a sports fan, a lot of sports fans don't want to think or talk about complicated, difficult things. They want sports to be a place where they can unplug and put all that aside, right? Stick to sports, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of a comfort blanket people put on themselves, but I don't think that is necessarily my perspective. Eric Avila, curious what you feel like the city's responsibility is to these families that they reneged on their promise on so many years ago. Well, Definitely an apology for starters. And I think that includes the county. And I think that includes the the, the franchise, the Dodgers as well. But um, let me just add a couple of quick points of analysis. Um, in my opinion, in my reading, the crux of the issue is not simply that people were displaced. Um, that's part of the issue. But but the real issue is, is the way that the city of Los Angeles handled this and, and the rhetoric that was used to justify its actions. Mm. Um, in the early 1950s, um, city officials, city hall attacked public housing because it was government subsidized housing. Um, and, and at the time, government, like, like today, government subsidies associated with socialism, it's associated with communism, falsely associated with, with those ideals. Um, but for the city to say that you know, government subsidy housing is bad and then turn around and subsidize the private ownership, private claims to publicly owned land is hypocrisy. Um, you know, why is government subsidy okay for a wealthy private businessman and not okay um, for working class people um, who, who uh, deserve um, modern uh, infrastructure opportunities. Um, the second uh, point of analysis that I would add here is that you need to understand this episode through a broader lens of Mexican-American and Chicano history. Um, I am Chicano, um, so I think I can speak to this a bit, but in the history of Mexican-Americans and, and Mexican people, displacement and dispossession of land, and this is true for Native Americans as well, and African-Americans and other groups, um, this episode uh, of, of, of land use and um, land transfer resonates within a much broader historical context of displacement and dispossession going back to the Mexican-American War in the mid-19th century when the United States forced Mexico to give up one-third of its national territory um, so that the United States could realize its dream of manifest destiny and and. Uh, conquer the, the Pacific uh, Southwest. 
So that's a, a broader historical framework that I right. think we need to understand this in. And I was asking Eric earlier about the responsibility of the Dodgers. How do you see that piece of it? Do you agree with him? Which Eric? <laughs> Eric Avila. I'm sorry, do I agree with? Eric Nussbaum, that the Dodgers have a responsibility to this community as well as I the do. city. I do. I absolutely agree because, you know, things played out through a, a coordinated partnership between, you know, public officials in Los Angeles and the private ownership of the franchise. And through that coordinated effort is how Dodger Stadium was built. So in my opinion, all of those parties are responsible um, for righting the wrongs of the past. It's, it's not one individual. I mean, the city handled this in a completely disingenuous and, and, and hypocritic way. Um, but there's no question that the Dodgers profited immensely from this deal. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're part of the problem in their eagerness to, to cash in on the opportunities that, that the city offered. Well, let me go to caller Mark in Dublin. Hi, Mark. Hi. <clears throat> There's an interesting parallel on the other end in Brooklyn, how the, uh, uh, the borough wound up losing the Dodgers because Walter O'Malley wanted to build a, a state-of-the-art stadium in Brooklyn, and what he needed from Robert Moses, who was the coordinator of building in New York, was that uh, he condemn a certain piece of land in Brooklyn um, and then package it together so O'Malley could buy it for a relatively cheap price uh, and, and then build his stadium there. Now, that didn't happen because Moses basically decided, I want to build Chase Stadium in Queens. You're not going to get your stadium in, uh, uh, in Brooklyn. And um, uh, it's interesting now because, of course, the Dodgers left to, to get this sweetheart deal in Los Angeles where they were able to use, pub, use uh, eminent domain to get the land that they needed, again, throwing out you know, people who had been there for you know, many years. Um, and now the the uh, land in in uh, in Brooklyn is being used for uh, the new stadium where the Brooklyn Nets play. So history kind of repeats itself. Well, Mark, thanks for sharing that anecdote. Joel tweets: If one were to dig back through history, couldn't the same be told for almost everything? Large professional and collegiate sports venues in this country. Um, it raises an interesting question, and maybe I'll start with you on that, Eric Nussbaum, because you were talking a little bit earlier about how sports fans often just like to really focus, if they can, on their love of the game. And people do have a real emotional investment in sports teams. And I wonder if in your coverage of the the kinds of troubled histories in sports that you've unearthed or, you know, if you've learned anything about how how to navigate a strong emotional investment in a team or a place that has a troubled history? I mean, I, I'm somebody who believes that you can love something and be critical of it. And that the best way to love a team or a city or a country or whatever it is, is to examine it for all its faults and really think deeply about it. And I think that's true for sports too. What I think is more relevant here is the fact that um, as, as the, person on Twitter pointed out, there's a very long history of sports owners uh, preying on those emotions to extort cities and fans for stadiums. Uh, there's a very long historical pattern of basically wealthy people determining 
what should happen to less wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, it's happening right now in Los Angeles the same way it did in the 1950s. You know, we're seeing yet another basketball arena being built in Inglewood for the Clippers. Uh, is that really the best use of our resources as a society? I, I tend to think it isn't. Uh, same question to you, Eric Avila. I'm just curious what you think about that, how we navigate an emotional investment in a place or even a person with such a troubled history. Well, I, I agree with, with Mr. Nussbaum. I mean, yes, you can love something and be critical of, of it at the same time. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, looking at this through the lens of, of 21st century Los Angeles, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a severe housing crisis right now and, and a dearth of affordable housing that's, you know, creating new extremes of, of racial and class inequality in, in Southern California. And, you know, to me, if, if we want to explain how we got here, um, episodes like uh, the construction of Dodger Stadium and the destruction of the neighborhoods um, in that area is one of the, 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 the key dimensions of understanding, you know, the severe housing crisis that, that we're in today. Hmm. So you draw a direct line. Have you seen, as a historian who's known about and understood these issues, have you seen more focus and attention on them now than ever before? Are you hopeful that Chavez Ravine is, is finally being, becoming something that is really be considered as, as an issue that requires some real attention and recompense? It seems like it. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm happy that, that the conversation is um, as out there as it, as it, I think it, it never has been before. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think that there, I think Melissa Arachiga is right. I think it's, it's correct to draw comparison to Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach. And this broader pattern of, of pushing people of color out um, in the name of, of, of white ownership, in the name of private development, um, I, I agree with that. So I think, you know, after everything we've been through in 20, 2020, 2021, um, I think revisiting this history, I think it's a good time to do that. And Eric Nassam, you were also talking about broader structural forces at play. Uh, is there anything that you would want to add to that or your reaction to what's happened with Bruce's Beach? Do you feel like there's a, a model process there to follow? I don't know if there's a model process there, but I think the fact that it's happened once is a sign that it can happen again. I think it's worth pointing out that the LA um, politician who really was behind the Bruce's Beach sort of recompense was Janice Hahn, whose father, Kenneth Hahn, as a city councilor and then county commissioner in LA, was one of the key proponents in bringing the Dodgers in and facilitating this deal. And it's nice to see that maybe the next generation's doing things a little bit differently, a little more conscientiously. Um, I hope that Ms. Hahn can continue that work when it comes to the story of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. Eric Nesbaum, journalist and author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, The Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. It was published last year in March. Appreciate having you on. Thank you. Thank you. Also want to thank Eric Avila, urban cultural historian and professor at UCLA. Thank you, Professor Avila. Thank you very much. And earlier we heard from Melissa Arachiga, board member for Buried Under the Blue. Appreciated having Melissa on as well. We are going out actually with a song that is about Chavez Ravine. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
que yo quise por las tardes se sentaban afuera tomar el Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.